Okay, Liam, where where are we right now? We are outside the Mermaid Bar. Um, and why are we here? Because the state spent a lot of money on this bar. And this is also where you spend most afternoons alone? I love mermaids. All right. The chandeliers. Yeah. Hot TVs. Yes. This isn't my type of place, but some some neat afternoon tunes. I like it. It's dark, at least. Yeah, very dark. So, does people are in this tank here? What? How does it work? So. So, so far, no mermaids. Oh, wait. No, that's kelp. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. And we have returned after a prolonged absence. Yeah, a bit of a hiatus. Um, sorry about that. But we're here now. We're back. Um, so you can resume doing your laundry or your dishes and listening to our pleasantly Jewish yet masculine voices. <laughs> um, today, so, yeah, so why don't you tell us why, why we had an extra week off? Uh, I... I'm glad you're framing it that way instead of just outright blaming me. But um, I was uh, waist deep in data for uh, this thing called the California Dream Project, which is a collaboration of NPR stations across California, KQED, KPCC, KPBS down in San Diego, CAP Radio here in Sacramento, and us, Cal Matters. Um, and we launched a series looking at kind of California then and now, um, how how easy it was for the baby boomers <laughs> versus how hard it is for um, younger Californians as well as Californians from all walks of life. So we have a bunch of nice um, animated charts um, looking at things like the cost of housing, um, like income mobility, a um, bunch of other kind of metrics of uh, California then and now. What did you think of it? Uh, as a semi-objective observer uh, on this, I thought it was a wonderful project. And so congratulations, because I think it really put into context uh, how things have changed in the state over the last uh, last 40 years. Yeah. And it's important to understand how, you know, why things are the way they are now and, and what our challenges are and how, they, and how they've changed over time. Yeah. couple plugs before we begin. Um, first off, both Liam and I moderated panels a couple weeks back uh, sponsored by Cap Weekly. Videos of uh, my panel and Liam's panel are available on YouTube at Cow Channel's yes. website. Mm -hmm. And lastly, why don't you tell us about our first, hopefully, I don't know, in-person podcast? Go ahead. I mean, you just you just ruined the punchline. Like, I was getting ready to, like, lead up to the fact that we're going to be live, live, podcasting live. You yeah. can see us in person doing this thing. I'm still not yeah. sure how we're actually going to be live, live, but go, go, well, go ahead. Well, live in the sense that we'll be in, in, in at a place uh, in public. <laughs> And talking. what is that place? So we're going to be at the Housing California Conference on March 7th, uh, and we can perhaps tweet out more details on the exact time and when we figure out a guest and those sorts of things. But it'll be a great, great thing to uh, check us out in person and see how many times we screw up. It's a lot. Yes. It's a lot. Good editing. Uh, thank you. Okay. Our topic for today, taxpayer-funded mermaids. 
Yes. And housing. What does that have to do with housing? Well, this was a program uh, called Redevelopment that was uh, killed in 2011, uh, in part because concerns about abuses like spending taxpayer dollars to fund renovations of bars that have mermaids in them, uh, like the one in downtown Sacramento. And so this was a, a crucial funding program for affordable housing uh, up and down the state for many years. And now there are conversations about bringing it back. And- uh, we have a wonderful guest here. Big, I think the biggest guest yet on the podcast. Like, like a huge fish, big get for us. <laughs> um, who is it, Liam? So it's Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. Yes. Which not who not only will be talking to us about um, Sacramento um, and the changing housing landscape here, but also you know he was the leader of the Senate at the time, state Senate at the time that redevelopment was killed. But first, uh, go ahead, Liam. Our avocado of the fortnight? Yeah, well, it's been a little more than a fortnight. Of a, yeah, whatever three, after three weeks is. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think there is a Shakespearean term for three weeks. No. Yeah. Avocado. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tell us about it, Matt. This, this avocado of the fortnight uh, goes to the city of Beverly Hills, which uh, I guess kind of deserves a, a, a prize for meeting its affordable housing requirement. A couple weeks back, just to give full context to this, uh, the Department of Housing and Community Development, um, the State Housing Department, released its master list of those cities that met their affordable housing goals and their uh, market rate housing goals, and those have not, um, in compliance with SB 35, which was a centerpiece of the housing package introduced uh, last year by uh, Senator Scott Weiner, um, which said, if you are not meeting your goals... Um, developers can kind of fast track their projects in your jurisdiction. Um, Beverly Hills was one of the 13 cities on that list that met their goals. One of 2% of yes. jurisdictions in the state. Yes. 2%. So <laughs> that's Polite my golf clap. That's my clap for Beverly Hills. Um, actually, that list is going to, I've heard, is going to be winnowed down to 11 because a, a couple cities on there, their data was not accurate. Cheaters! <laughs> Well, I think that's a little strong, <laughs> but there there probably will only be eleven cities that actually met their um, their housing production requirements. Right. Uh, so, kudos to Beverly Hills. So, um, but what makes Beverly Hills an avocado? Because the first thing I think of when I think of Beverly Hills is affordable housing mecca. So that's right. You know, uh, also Jason Priestley, but second. <laughs> Affordable housing mecca. So Matt, tell tell me what tell me why tell me why I'm right. Why it is an affordable it's housing an amazing mecca. Amazing Jason Priestley reference. <laughs> well done. Their housing production goals as set out um, by the state and really by the regional government, um, you could count on one hand. They they had to produce three units. Over o- how many years? Over an eight year span. So wow. kudos to Beverly Hills. Yeah. They I mean they they actually produced more than that. Wow. Yes. It looks like, so how many units did they do? Uh, They did nine low-income and moderate-income units, and they did uh, more for above moderate income. So they more than tripled. Yes, 300%. Wow. (laughs) It's it's amazing. And that's why we called it a mecca of affordable housing. (laughs) So the avocado-y part of this is obviously how small that requirement was of Beverly Hills, which is obviously kind of primo real estate. I think a lot of people would desire to live there. And it also sheds a light on um, the process by which these housing production goals are allocated to localities, right? Right. Um, which it is often the case that wealthier, affluent, and typical, typically wider cities, 
such as Beverly Hills, do not share the burden of housing production as much as um, some less affluent, less white um, cities. Um, and so you, you say burden like housing production is a bad thing. Share the promise of housing production. That's really. true. Thanks for reframing yeah. that for yeah. me. Uh-huh. Um, I think a, a good example, so I was just kind of looking at, okay, give me another city in L.A. County that has a equivalent population size of Beverly Hills. And so San Dimas, have you ever been to Raging Waters? You seem no. like a Raging Waters guy. Uh, no. Uh-uh. No? Uh-uh. No, you don't like water theme parks? No, I don't know how to swim, man. You don't know how to swim? No. What? Yeah, don't never learned. Okay, so one, you don't really need to know how to swim at a <laughs> at a at a water park. But two, oh my god. We we learn something new every, yeah, I every know. We learn something new every fortnight here yeah. on the podcast. I guess Whatever moves you're trying to make on the mermaids, that's an ill-fated relationship from the <laughs> from the get-go. Anyway, San Dimas, um, very eastern part of L.A. County. Lots of people with very long commutes coming out of San Dimas as opposed to if you live in Beverly Hills, your commute may be not as bad. Right. Um, their housing allocation, uh, they needed to produce over 400 units. Um, there's a lot of different factors that go into – the housing allocation decision that these local government edi- entities, the Southern California one is called SCAG. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that go into how they actually distribute it. But just to give you an idea of how different those allocations are from one city to the next, San Dimas, not the Beverly Hills of East LA County, despite the raging waters, which you won't find Liam at. Yeah, <laughs> I had nothing to add to that. That was. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I, mean, I will say though, like I, you know, I last 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 June, I I did a finished a, a roughly year long project looking at this very issue, um, and sort of how these numbers are allocated and how this process works, because we have these these goals that are supposed to say that you know every city in the state has to take their share of the uh, promise of building housing at all income levels. And uh, they just—it doesn't work. The process doesn't work. They don't—you don't get the production that, that it's called for. Yeah. There's really little to no sanction for not doing it, and cities hate it. And I—I I understand, um, in some ways, why they do, because in a lot of ways, it's—it's it's sort of it, there's no sanction, good or bad, for, for 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 getting this done. And so, yeah, I mean, as I've talked about this, a lot of housing advocates yell at me and they say, "Look, this process is important because it it, it forces cities to zone for housing otherwise wouldn't." And fair enough. Um, my my response back often is, "Do we need?" This sort of elaborate process just to force for zo- just to force zoning issues, and it, you know, if, it, so maybe there's another way to do it, or or you put some teeth potentially put some teeth into this process so that there's a real reason to do it. You know, an- another of these cities, thirteen that met their housing goals, eleven. 11 that met their housing goals is uh, Foster City in the Bay Area. And Foster City was the lead anecdote in my story about how this process doesn't work. And that's because the then mayor of Foster City, when they were passing this, uh, their plan to satisfy the state requirements, called what they were doing an elaborate shell game and said that they were lying because while they were going, these are direct quotes, while they were going to pass this plan, they actually had no intention of actually building the units. And so, you know, when the poster child, a poster child for how much system doesn't work, actually is seen as one of the two percent of cities in the state that's doing this, doing this right, it shows how much of a problem this this process actually is. Sure, and and we should say, part of the reason why this specific list was generated and released to the public was SB thirty five is supposed to be a little bit of that stick 
that was missing, right? Exactly, and I think it, it really is yeah. the first time that these goals are tied to actually something that's sort of meaningful in a way. And in this case, it's, you know, if you are missing all of your housing goals, then uh, some of your permitting process has to be streamlined. You have to, if the zoning matches your proposed project, you have to say yes. Uh, okay, let's move on to our topic of the day. Liam, what is our number of the fortnight? $1 billion. And... What does that $1 billion have to do with taxpayer-funded mermaids? Well, uh, $1 billion was the amount of money that uh, was allocated for low-income housing at the time when uh, the redevelopment program was ended. And so that $1 billion went away the following year and so far hasn't been replaced. And that's why a principal reason why you have a number of legislators wanting to bring it back. When was that ended? 2011. And why did it go away, Liam? Well, uh, we're going to, you know, Mayor Steinberg is going to tell us all about that. Um, but <laughs> until then, I, you know, we need to remember how things bad, how bad things were. It was in, real bad. In the state um, around 2010, 2011. Huge budget crisis. You know, like it, it reminds me of like, you know, you, you put your finger in a dam and then another thing happens in the dam and water comes out and you can't. Too soon. You, you know, you can't. Too soon. Oh, God. <laughs> but continue. So. During that time, there was just a tremendous amount of pressure to deal with this huge uh, budget crisis that the state was feeling. And so, the, you know, Governor Brown, relatively new in office uh, or new in office at the time, was looking for ways to take any money that he possibly could. And he centered on or, or, or looked at this redevelopment program. And redevelopment, program, redevelopment, basically what it does or what it did was set aside a certain amount of property taxes – uh, that cities could use to deal with uh, blight was the term that was used. Yes. Um, sort of an urban renewal program started. The program started during, you know, right after World War II or around World War II. And so this was very much in the urban renewal kind of time period. And it allowed cities to set aside, use this money that was set aside um, to – uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 put in sidewalks and and add transit and clean up brownfield sites, parks, and parks, and do all these things uh, that were to sort of improve a neighborhood so that private investment would come in. And what it did is it set a space year for a particular neighborhoods, say 1975, and any property tax growth after 1975 would get sequestered into this pot of money. Uh, that could be then used for this for this purpose, and so and a, cer a certain percent, twenty percent, had to be set aside for low income housing, um, and uh, the money uh, would be siphoned away from the general funds or the funds that that you know cities use to pay their cops and firefighters and everything else they do, the general funds of counties, yeah. uh, and also uh, from special districts, so your water districts or whatever else was going on in a certain neighborhood, and also from uh, education from K to 14 schools. And just yeah. just uh, real quickly, how did uh, those local jurisdictions feel about redevelopment agencies? I loved them. See? Loved them. So, but that seems to, why? If, the, if they were taking away money that could have went to their general fund, right? Why were they so enamored with RDAs? Because they got more money than they would have otherwise gotten, and they could throw the money around in a lot of different ways. So why were they getting more money than they otherwise could have gotten? Because it took money away from the general funds of counties they wouldn't have otherwise have seen. Bingo. And, and it took money away from the schools that they wouldn't otherwise have seen. Now, now, um, <laughs> we know taking money away from schools is not like a politically okay thing to do. right? You can't really – it's like tough to make that argument that we should take money away from schools. I have not seen a – take money away from schools bumper sticker. Exactly. So what happened is because of state 
rules in, under the state constitution that schools need to be made whole in these circumstances, uh, money that would have gone to schools that these redevelopment agencies took away, the state had to come in and backfill. Yep. And that was the big problem. That was the big thing where Governor Brown said, we need some money. These redevelopment agencies, too much money going to them. Um, we need to look at this pot and let's take some of that money back. And therefore, we can save money that we otherwise would have had to spend on schools. And we're talking, you know, billions of dollars a year that the state had to subsidize yep. um, as a result of, uh, of, of this process. So aside from Jerry Brown's personal problems with, uh, redevelopment and the budget crisis and the budget crisis. Yes, I mean it sounds like a inherently fairy tale successful program. Were there any problems with redevelopment, Liam? Oh, were there problems? <laughs> you know. So we talked about this mermaid bar. Right? I don't consider yeah. mermaids a problem. Well, I mean, you know, mer- uh, yeah, I mean, I, it sounds great, but the question is, should we be spending, you know, uh, 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 you know, limited taxpayer dollars to build bars that have mermaids in them? So let's R- back up a second. Yes. What, what what was the mermaid bar, and what what does it have to do with redevelopment? Yeah. So the city of Sacramento used redevelopment funding uh, along their K Street corridor, which is kind of the one of the main areas downtown between the capital and now the, the new basketball arena yep. um, to uh, spruce it up. And in, among the sprucing was rebuilding this sort of old building that, that then turned into a mermaid bar. So it was, it's a night. So Liam and I visited the bar before we came here for, our, for, for the first for time. Our reporting. For, and for our reporting. Right, for our reporting. Thanks for making that clear. <laughs> for my first time there, uh, I, you know, you said it was yours, but I don't quite believe you. No, yeah. I, I had been in there once before, but just to kind of take a look. I see. Um, okay. I'm a regular. They know me. All the mermaids <laughs> know me. Uh, nice place. Yeah. Yeah. But should we be spending taxpayer money on that? And, and instead of schools or instead of any number of other things that we could be spending taxpayer money on. And we should say it, it wasn't just the mermaid bar. There were other elements of the K Street corridor, as it's yes. kind of known down here, that uh-huh. w- also received redevelopment funds. Right. And the K Street corridor, wh- what do you think of it now? It's, you know. Ignore your East Coast cosmopolitan standards <laughs> just by pure, you know, whether it's nice or not. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, there's a third wave coffee shop coming. Um. <laughs> I know there's a Bennigan's. We could ask Steinberg about that. <laughs> so you know, it's, it's you know, but but the question too is, you know, do we do we need to spend that taxpayer? I mean, this was this was an area that was changing anyway, right? And that was always a question about redevelopment: is that you know, if we don't do this, is, is it, do we need to subsidize these areas um, or are they just going to change without a subsidy? And then, you know, we could spend our money again. Is this the best use of taxpayer money? And and the mermaid, I mean, the far from the only sort of scandal yes. here, uh, you know, my, one of I just did a number of favorites. Um, one is um, <laughs> so Coronado, city of Coronado, mm-hmm. sort of a, a wealthy beachfront town uh, uh, near uh, San Diego. In fact, uh, uh, listeners may be aware or may recognize Coronado from the Anchorman film. This was the, the bridge. Coronado Bridge is where Jack Black punted Ron Burgundy's dog into the into the water. Yeah. So that'll help you put, get, give you a sense of place. It's, right? You're rooting us. It's yes. Good. Yes. So um, multi-million dollar ocean, oceanfront homes in the redevelopment area of Coronado, which is supposed to, again, be blighted. It's supposed to be in need of urban renewal. It's supposed to be downtrodden. And instead, we've got oceanfront homes in this area. You know, 
that's not what the purpose of this was supposed to be, you know? Um, what about abuses kind of specific to that 20% of redevelopment funds that were supposed to go towards affordable housing? Right. So my LA Times colleagues a long time ago in 2010 um, found dozens of cities spending hundreds of millions of dollars reserved for affordable housing on employees' salaries, planning documents, developer subsidies, lobbyists. other things, lobbyists, other things, without building a single unit. Dozens of cities, hundreds of millions of dollars of housing money without building any housing at all. So that being said, doesn't sound like the most efficient program either for um, getting rid of urban blight or for uh, promoting more affordable housing. How did um, affordable housing advocates feel uh, when Jerry Brown successfully... Jerry Brown and the California Supreme Court right. took away uh, redevelopment. They were sad. So why were they sad if this thing wasn't that because all that great it, to begin it, with? it was a dedicated, ongoing source of money for housing that went away, uh, period. And yes, um, I think uh, every housing advocate that I've spoken to recognizes that there were abuses in the program. It could have been done different. It could have been done better. But when you lose a billion dollars, you're mad and you're sad and it gets a lot of money. And, and and there's really not been since um, any sort of effort or any sort of uh, – despite the passage last year of Senate Bill 2, which adds this sort of uh, uh, dedicated pot of money for affordable housing out of real estate documents, that rivals the amount of money that was generated through redevelopment. Yes. And that's a problem. I mean, it's a totally different scale. Totally different scale. And that's yeah. a problem, especially at a time when the need continues to grow. So let, kind of just putting together the broader pieces here – if, if you are a fan of how Brown handled the fiscal emergency he was confronting in 2010, 2011, 2012, right, the fact that we are back to having a balanced budget, some of that has to do with the fact that money for affordable housing went away. That's what part of the deficit solution exactly yeah. was. Mm -hmm. So that it, it's a trade-off, right? That's right. Um, That's right. So – much rosier budget times now. Yep. Um, what what is Assemblymember Chu cooking up? Yeah. So this is not a sort of the kind of thing that you can really put Humpty Dumpty back together again to do this. You need to resolve a number of problems. Too soon. <laughs> number of problems that were created in this system and were existing in this system and that need to be uh, addressed now. And so you have to remember this money, this is not like money you make up out of nowhere. The money comes from people, different people's budget budgets. And so you have to kind of make do one of two things, make it worth their while to participate or steamroll them. And either of those things are not easy to do. Do not sound pleasant. No. And so, you know, cities, right? So cities have, you know, a, a ton of costs they're confronting. They've this Lego cities put out a report relatively recently, staring down a zillion dollars, uh, give or take a, a few million in, in pension costs. Hey, there's that, no Newsom accounting on this right? podcast, Liam. Come on. So, so, um, you know, to take money from their general funds that they're going to need to spend on other things, it has to be worth their while to do that. And so they're going to want more money than they otherwise could have gotten. Right. That's you have to deal with them. Then counties. Um, counties were the big loser 
in, um, aside from the state general fund, counties were the big loser in the prior version of the program because they had no say at all over when, or very little say, over when an area was declared a redevelopment area, and it took money from them. And so, again, you know, when I, we spoke, I spoke for a story I did on this with the representative from the county association who said, uh, the only way you really should do this is if we say yes. They want veto power over it. And so um, if you want veto power over it, that could curtail the amount of money that could go into it or they or they could get a share of it or something. So, so, you have, you so have to go, decide, go yeah. into a little more detail on that. Veto power over what exactly? Veto power over potential. The types of projects that would be used? Either the types of projects or, or how you would designate a neighborhood as being one that would be uh, uh, acceptable under this program or where the property tax sequestering would go. And so they want a more of a role than they had in the prior program to be able to determine those sorts of things. And so, again, you have to decide, are you going to play ball or are you going to try to roll them? And rolling them is not an easy thing to do, particularly when there's a lot of money involved, potentially a lot of money involved. So who are the other players? So you have the state. Um, Jerry Brown, one who the one who killed the program and didn't like it, is not super enthused about a redevelopment 2.0. And so um, this might be a play, as Assemblymember Chu sort of hinted during the podcast when we had him on in the podcast, this could be a play for a future governor. Yes. You know, uh, Gavin Newsom, John Chung, Antonio Villaraigosa, the three leading Democratic candidates for, for governor, and have what? all endorsed sort of bringing this program back. Um, and so uh, in, some, in some way, shape or form, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's another thing that needs to be that needs to be addressed, whether they're going to do it now or, or later, because this will in order for this to work, it will have a state budget impact along the lines of what it had before. So in your opinion, then, is this really more of a let's let's confront some of these political obstacles now. Let's get people familiar with this topic. Let's get some momentum around this. And then in January of next year, we'll have we'll have a bill that's you know, almost there or right. kind of getting there, or at right. least we'll have, we'll know who's supporting it and who isn't. And then we'll have a new governor who'll back this. Is that really the play I, here? I think if this is going to happen, that's the likeliest outcome. Uh, I think it's the likely, or the, the most hopeful outcome for yeah. those who want this to happen. I mean, there's some hope out there that Jerry Brown will want to shape this program rather than leaving it to his successor. And so maybe, maybe that. But I think more likely is. Uh, those who back this and the legislature want to kind of get a head start on what the next governor is going to do, and they want to roll in deciding how this program may look, since, particularly since the next governor, decent chance that they're going to want to do this program too. How yeah. much money are we talking about, especially relative to what it was? So this is another really important question. If they do this tomorrow, they're not seeing any real money probably for five or ten years. And the reason if is— If they structure it the exact same way. If they structure it the exact same way. And, and you know, for my story, it was pretty, it was made pretty well clear that they're not going to make this retroactive or that would be a huge sort of difficult, really difficult thing to do. And so I, I would not really expect this to be retroactive. I expect it to be forward-looking. Remember how redevelopment works. You set a date, and then after that date, property tax money that increases after that date, that's what gets— put into the redevelopment pot, right? And so you set 2018 as a date, it may take five years. It may take till 2028 for sufficient funds to build up in this kitty, if you will, to spend it on things like housing or, or transit upgrades or sidewalks or whatever the heck that you want to be allowed to spend it on. So considering the housing crisis now is objectively worse than what it was in redevelopment's heyday, do you expect that 20% mark to end up being higher if there is a new 
uh, redevelopment program? I, I think uh, likely yes. I think we're going to see a higher set aside, a higher amount of that funding that will have to be dedicated under the new law to go towards housing. Interestingly, too— Especially I mean, in light of some of the abuses. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even mention the, the $17 million spent on, to upgrade a golf course in Palm, uh, in Palm Desert. We also have to—I talked about, too, like no one seems interested in reviving the term blight— you know, even almost feels well, almost even feels weird to say like, it. That's an LBJ know? term. Exactly, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, so how do you decide or or declare which neighborhoods are eligible for this? I think the most likely answer is something around transit-oriented development or something that that would align with the climate goals and yes. other sorts of ways that the state has to f- fix other priorities. Uh, other it's priorities. also very hard not to interpret redevelopment as a you know, thinly veiled uh, entree for gentrification, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even the word, I mean, I, yeah. I think I yep, think, I think exactly. we, we're probably going to see, you know, we're calling it redevelopment 2.0, and I think that's gaining some currency in the legislature as, as sort of a way to to talk about it. But I don't think at the end of the day that even that's going to survive because yeah. of all the negative connotations that come with that word, that come with blight, that come with urban renewal, that come with all these programs that are, again, seen as, as harbingers of gentrification and displacement. Um, and with that, uh, let's talk with the mayor of Sacramento. Let's talk with Mayor Steinberg. Here with Daryl Steinberg, the mayor of Sacramento and former leader of the state Senate. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down. So uh, you loved redevelopment, right, when it was around? <laughs> well, I... Um liked redevelopment and thought that redevelopment was an important tool for, for cities and for counties. But redevelopment um, was not a perfect tool by any means. Um, it, it, there were instances where it was misused. But more importantly, I think, um, redevelopment was part of the great or not so great budget crisis of 2008 through 2012. And, you know, what happens in government here too often, I've been on both sides, right? I've been state Senate leader and now I'm mayor of a city. I was on the city council, a member of the assembly. I've seen it both ways. And what happens with organizational politics too often is that it's us versus them. And redevelopment sort of got caught between the state of California is trying to balance its budget on the backs of local governments. And the state of California confronting uh, 45 plus billion dollars worth of budget deficit and having to make very real choices between health and human services, higher education, and um, economic development for local government, which is redevelopment. And unfortunately, that organizational mentality, mostly from the city side, led to the demise of redevelopment. Because the truth is, and I tell this story often and had to tell it during my mayoral campaign because it became a subject of controversy, um, the legislature did not eliminate redevelopment. When Jerry Brown became governor of California in 2011, he called for the elimination of redevelopment, and he had his own experiences with redevelopment in Oakland and wasn't a big fan, but it really was budget-driven. The legislature responded and said, no, we don't want to eliminate this very important tool, but we recognize that we need to cut because everything needs to be cut, and so we essentially cut redevelopment in half. We kept the agencies, we kept 
all the obligation for the existing um, <clears throat> existing obligations, and we kept half of the corpus. We passed that. Governor Brown reluctantly signed it as part of the budget compromise of 2011. And then what happened was the League of Cities and the redevelopment agencies, which had been, you know, sort of warriors in this battle, you know, that the state cannot balance its budgets on our backs, you know, um, sued. And the California Supreme Court held... Um, it was a complicated right. transaction. Right. Two bills where the legislature right. eliminated redevelopment and then restored it. Right. The California Supreme Court said, well, if it's all or nothing, it's nothing. Right. And redevelopment went away. And that's the truth. And there's really a cautionary tale here. And here's the cautionary tale to me. And when it comes to housing policy and all the things that you guys are talking about, it's important to remember that whether you're a member of the state legislature, state legislature, or whether you're a mayor or city council member, we represent the same people. And those people care about um, local economic development and the state of their downtown. They care about fire service and police service. They drive the state freeways. They send their kids to community colleges. They send their kids to the public schools. And so whenever politics devolves to the mentality of us versus them, somebody's going to lose. And in this case, local economic development lost. Yeah. Not just that, though, but, I mean, you were here in the Capitol this week uh, asking for a billion and a half dollars of state money for homelessness. Um, the last year redevelopment was around. It was a billion dollars for housing yes. statewide. Wouldn't it have been nice to have kept redevelopment and then you'd have you're basically most of your ask for already, right? Well, the biggest yeah. loss in redevelopment, in my view, is not the local economic development incentives, but it was the affordable housing. It's the It was the 20 percent set aside. That was a huge loss. And yes, cities um, and counties have not uh, been able to deal with that adequately. I know post-redevelopment, I forget what year because they all run together, but when I was in the Senate, I introduced SB1 to try to bring back a form of tax increment financing, redevelopment, but around my SB375, the smart growth bill, right. as opposed to the old definition of, of blight. But really the relationships between the local governments, the cities specifically, and the executive branch, the governor, were so strained by how redevelopment went down and the way the cities dealt with it that Governor Brown during his term has never really been willing to entertain any sort of restoration of tax increment. It may change with a new governor um, and a fresh start, but it won't be the old redevelopment, nor should it be. The focus needs to be on housing mm -hmm. and affordable housing. And that's why we as mayors yesterday, big 11 mayors came forward and said, look, housing is the issue. Yes, we need economic development assistance across the board. But if you're going to focus precious state dollars on one priority, it ought to be housing, affordable housing, and especially uh alleviating this homeless crisis. So practically, what does that look like? Does that mean that in kind of redevelopment 2.0 that housing gets a higher percentage of revenue than it did under the old program? Well, if and when some form of tax increment financing is um, brought back to the table, and I anticipate that it will be brought back in a serious way, probably not this year, but um, in, the, in the new term of the new governor, I think it'll be an issue that'll be front and center. Mm -hmm. I would anticipate 
some form of permanent tax increment financing, but with a much greater emphasis on housing and affordable housing. Yes. So, so tell us the, <laughs> the best story or the craziest story from the redevelopment fight in 2001. Well, what I remember, <clears throat> there were very few instances where um, a leader should use his or her ultimate power. And you know what that ultimate power is? Tell no, us. please. Yeah. <laughs> it's to lock the doors and not let anybody out until you get the votes that you need. And that was I, a really good gravelly I, voice. I, yeah, yes, thank that. you. That yeah, was, was it was in, it was in, <laughs> this is it was intended for dramatic effect yes. actually. You know, I I am the mayor of the city that uh, that produced Lady Bird, okay? Yeah. I just want to say. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> in 2009 during, you know, actually the earliest state budget passage in state history, February 21st, 2009, I had to lock people in because the idea of deep cuts and tax increases were an estimate of both sides, but it's what it took to avoid really a tacit bankruptcy in 2009. But it was a rough, some might say even a horrible experience to lock people in. I remember, you know, senior senators, you know, late 70s, early 80s sprawled out among, you know, <laughs> on the floor of the Senate trying to catch some sleep. And it really is wow. not, not, not very good. So fast forward to the redevelopment uh, debate. There were a lot of members that were, one, liked redevelopment, and two, were under intense pressure from their mayors to not vote for even the cut to redevelopment. Remember, we didn't eliminate it. It was a cut. Well, you did both. Well, we did both, but in combination over 15 minutes of legislating, we eliminated and then restored redevelopment. But um, I had two members, um, both members of Congress now and good friends of mine who were really reluctant to vote for it. And I remember, you know, feeling my uh, feeling my oats a little bit as the leader, having been through some of the very difficult budget fights. Um, I basically said to them, here's the deal. Um, we can be here two days or we can be here for two hours. I don't care. We are not going to end this session until I get these votes. I had to. There was no choice. Yeah. Without the cut, we were going to have to cut health and human services, the safety net, even deeper. And we were already cutting it significantly deep. So um, they knew I was serious. And uh, it took about two hours. Came back and and we got the votes. Was bathroom access also prohibited? No, we will just... never prohibit bathroom access. No, there are, you know, there's dignity here. So what housing issue now would you lock the doors over (laughs) that's a great question i mean i think this homeless crisis is very real and i uh, i think that might be the issue which i would lock the doors i mean i think what's happened it's a complex issue of course because it has so many different causes right whether it's Mm -hmm. the high cost of housing uh, rent increases, the opioid crisis, mental illness, people living on the edge. There's a myriad of issues that that go into this. But I would say that over the course of a long period of time, there has been sort of an unstated belief that it's too hard to solve. And what you're hearing from big city mayors and from legislators, lead legislators, is that no, no more. It's not impossible. 
we may not cure it, but we can make it much better if we invest in what we know actually works. So, and what so has brought what people it off the street? That streets? actually works. Well, there are common elements. It's intensive outreach for people who um, are, yes, resistant to coming in from the cold because of their mental illness or substance abuse issues. But if you are consistent and persistent with the right kind of clinically trained outreach workers, you can get 80% of the people into care and treatment. Two, case management. You don't just bring somebody in and voucher them to go get the help that they need. You got to envelop them with support until they're stable enough to be able to help themselves. Third, emergency shelter and triage. We don't have enough of it. You don't get people from the streets into permanent housing right away. You need to assess people and, and help them gain stability for 90 days before you help them find more permanent housing. Fourth, uh, permanent housing. We don't have enough of it. And, you know, in Sacramento today, we're going to issue what we call a request for information, a fancy government term, for um, we're going to put we're going to put a couple hundred million dollars worth of project based vouchers what we call them out on the street and ask all the people involved who believe in the efficiency home movement tiny homes um, uh, all of the different variations of small three to four hundred unit living situations to bring us their best ideas and we'll subsidize the rent for 20 years for a thousand different uh, units fifth is mental health and substance abuse services. We've got those resources. Prop 63, I authored it, the Mental Health Services Act. The counties have a lot of money. And, you know, there's been some controversy about excessive reserves. I dealt with it mm -hmm. with my county. We've got to get that money out. You know, through Prop 63, by the way, just parenthetically, in 2015, the legislature passed No Place Like Home. We've got a $2 billion housing bond ready to be let. It's caught up in the state regulatory gauntlet because some advocates say it should only be used for services. I say housing is essential. We got to free that $2 billion and get that out as well. <clears throat> Finally, there's one other key element, and I emphasized this yesterday. We must focus on prevention. Prevention, prevention, prevention. The most pyrrhic of victories in Sacramento or in any city, and we're seeing some of this in Los Angeles, is to get thousands of people off the streets, housed, doing the right thing, mm -hmm. only to see the problem not get better because they're replaced by a new cohort of yeah. yeah. 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people. What are we doing to make sure that people who are living on the edge, who are one um, injury or, or life-altering family issue away from not being able to afford the rent and and being out on the street. Let's get you on the record about a couple things statewide. Um, Costa Hawkins rent r r repeal could be on the ballot in November. What do you th and to to expand rent control? What do you yeah, think? Yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, I am sort of in the middle on this, but genuinely so. I worry that strict rent control will um, create a significant dis disincentive to increase the supply, which I think is ultimately the answer. On the other hand, there is um, sort of the old, you know it when you see it. While I'm wary of the CPI sort of uh, rent control, I think that rent gouging 
you know, something above a reasonable rate increase ought to be regulated and prohibited mm -hmm. because um, it's just not reasonable or fair for somebody to be able to take advantage of a tight rental market, low vacancy rates, and to be able to charge whatever they want. I know some call that the free market, mm -hmm. but there are too many people that are hurting who are going to end up on the street as public charges um, if we don't do something. So I'd like to see a reasonable solution here. I know that's sometimes too much to ask for. Do you think that reasonable solution comes from the city, or do you think that reasonable solution comes from the state. In other words, like, do you support the? There needs to be initiative? some. Li there needs to be some liberalization of Costa Hawkins okay. because right okay. now there is very little. Um, there's very little room for cities, right? Because Costa Hawkins limits any um, post-1995 construction, and so I would love to see there be some reasonable legislative solution to this that did not call for sort of the strict rent control limits of CPI and I'm wary of that sort of regulation but if it's all or nothing then I guess we're gonna we're gonna see what the voters have to say I'd like to see some liberalization of Costa Hawkins because I'd like to have see cities have some tools to prevent outright rent gouging uh potentially could be a Prop 13 split roll on the ballot as well. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm for it, Yeah. Um, but I'm also not um, overly cheery about its prospects, right? I yeah. think it's a bloody special interest war with a lot of money <laughs> right, right. Um, at play. And, you know, I've long, long thought that there ought to be some distinction between commercial and, and residential property. I think Prop 13 was originally intended to protect um, seniors and others, um, you know, to ensure that they didn't lose their home because of spiking uh, and rising property tax rates. And so I think um, Prop 13 is and 218, right, have, right. have taken on mm -hmm. sort of a life of their own. I will tell you, though, the change I, w I think would be even more important. And that is to give local governments um, the ability to raise special taxes with less than a less than a, a two thirds supermajority. I see. Yeah. Um, that that is key. I mean, here's the irony of it. This is how sort of perverse the system is. If you're a local, if you're a mayor, and you want to um, solve a specific problem for the people, right? And you're and you're detailed and specific, which you should be. That's transparency. Right. The voter threshold is higher, two-thirds, than if you're general and you don't share the specifics with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that ought to be reversed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll confess, I recently relocated here from the Bay Area. Did you? From where? Uh, from Oakland. Oakland, very good. Um, there's been a steady stream of Bay Area residents uh, coming to Sacramento. That's part of the reason that rents in Sacramento have risen here so dramatically over the past couple years. Yes. Um, is the outflow of Bay Area residents to Sacramento a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good and great thing. Um, that's what we want more of, right? We want more industry. You want more people we like more me? Jobs. We want more people <laughs> like you, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, we, we want we, – look at we, – we want – we, we we believe that I believe. Look at I'm a Bay Area transplant. I tell this all the time, and I came here for a job many years ago, thirty some odd years ago. A job didn't work out, and I never left. 
and I've had a great life and career here, um, there's something special about Sacramento. It is a growing city that deserves all of the amenities that um, people want in a great city, but it will never lose its inclusiveness. It will never lose its feeling of belonging and of and the ease of getting involved and getting engaged in whatever you're interested in community. And yes, we want more of that. And we want more industry. And we want more high-wage jobs. We want to diversify the economy. But with growth comes challenges. And, and certainly housing is our major challenge. But you don't say we don't want the growth because um, we're unable or unwilling to deal with the challenges. We've got we to gotta address the challenges. Um, and housing affordability and homelessness, I think, is our major quality of life issue. And we're going to tackle it in every single way in partnership with um, our state brothers and sisters. One more uh, uh, legislative question. Uh, what do you think of the build up zone from Senator Scott Weiner around transit? SB 827. Uh, you know, first yeah. of all, I'm a big Scott Weiner fan. Uh-huh. Um, I think this is a guy who um, is unafraid to take on tough issues. Um, and that's the that's the fun of being in the legislature. Uh-huh. So you're not willing to push big rocks up uphill, man. It ain't worth doing. Anybody can vote the right way. Sure. It's what you take on. And so I, I haven't sat and I haven't looked at the bill, but um, uh, his idea about incentivizing more transit-oriented development, I, I think is right on. And I like that he... Uh, I like that he's not afraid to stoke some controversy. Generally, it's a way to do it. Generally speaking, do you think the state needs kind of more ammunition to compel cities to permit more building? I do. Uh, I, I you, you you have a very interesting perspective on this. I do. I mean, you know, I believe in local control, and I, I don't believe that the state should um, micromanage cities, but. I, I've never seen the words local control in the five books of, you know, the five books of Moses. I just, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's just, it's not biblical to me. I mean, to me, there's, there's gotta, there's, there's gotta be a balance here. Right. And there, um, it, it is appropriate for the state to set standards, to, um, expect outcomes and to hold everybody accountable for those outcomes, including the state, by the way. Right. Um, and so I, yeah, I do have a unique perspective. Again, I, I come from a place where um, I really reject sort of the tired old us versus them politics when it comes to state and local government. The state was not doing anything to cities when it sought to balance its impossible budgets. And the cities are right to say, don't tell us how to do our jobs. Let us, let, us, um, let us do it in the way we think best. But we should all be held accountable to, to the societal outcomes that we all want to see. And that includes fair share housing and, and, and ensuring that there is enough workforce and affordable housing in, in every city in our state. Uh, last question from, from me. Um, have you been to the dive bar? Uh, have I been to the dive? I've not been to the dive bar. No. Really? You not. really liked redevelopment, though. You've walked yeah. past it. Yeah. I, I've yeah. Walked, have I been there? Maybe. I don't know. I've go, I've, I go at a lot of places. But, uh, 
You know, you, you usually usually it sounds vague, Mister. Well, you know, the truth is, usually I head home after work. But uh, I don't, I don't know that I've been to the dive bar. What What goes through your head when you pass the dive bar, or when reporters obnoxiously ask you about a dive bar on a, on a podcast? Well, I think that it. Um, was an example of maybe the excesses of redevelopment. It's a sort of, you know, it got away maybe in some instances from its original intent. But what was unfortunate is, of course, it's the old baby with the bathwater, right? Because um, there was a lot of good that redevelopment did. And including the, that 20% set aside for housing, which I think we're still living with and suffering from. But, um, you know, um, always remember no matter what level of government you work in or work at, it's the people's money. It, it, it's not the city's money. It's not the state's money. It's not the county. It's the people's money. And the minute anybody forgets that, that's when you start seeing some of the things that allow the media and reporters to make a case example out of, uh, out of something that... Um, Blow it out of that, proportion. Well... But that's 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 why we love the First Amendment, right? <laughs> that that's your right, and uh, <clears throat> ultimately, I'd like to see a local economic development tool from the state come back, but it needs to be different. It needs to be refined, um, and um, a- and the focus ought to be on the housing crisis in California because it's not going away soon. Um, we want to get to a couple questions that we got for you from some of our listeners okay. on Twitter. But before that, I just wanted to quickly ask, um, can redevelopment happen without gentrification and displacement? And if so, how do you ensure that those things don't happen? Well, it has to, right? Um, gentrification, of course, is the unintended consequence of revitalization. But again, that's why an emphasis on housing and affordable housing is so important in any new tax increment tool that comes forward. And it was one of the attributes of the old redevelopment law was that 20% set aside. Again, um, I think there's a recognition that healthy communities, um, that there needs to be, you know, to use the old vernacular, a real jobs housing balance. And yes, you need more economic growth, high wage economic growth, by the way. You know, some of the old tools, including redevelopment, including, um, I forget what the name of the tax credit was back in the day. Enterprise zones. Enterprise zones incentivized a lot of low-wage employment. Everything needs to be geared towards high-wage employment, but there needs to be equal emphasis on the housing side. Um, okay, to our Twitter questions, okay. which will hopefully be a new segment. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, Should I worry? No. Okay. Uh, these are good questions. Our okay. listeners are incredibly wonky. So. Okay. Um, this is from Bobby Barnes at biznot for You. Uh Hi, Bobby. <laughs> uh, so I think he's referencing um, Governor Newsom, or Governor Newsom. Uh, wow. Ki- yes. wow that's, that's, Candidate Newsom. That's, that's Freudian. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, let's not dig into that. Um, uh, the plan he laid out to uh, improve housing in the state. Do you believe quadrupling our annual rate of housing construction is possible? What specific strands of red tape need to be cut to achieve this? Well, I do think it's possible, and I think it's necessary Um, it's going to take, um, every aggressive strategy to meet an aggressive goal. Um, and it, and it begins with local government, making it easier to site, 
the kinds of housing that we say we want more of. And that means combating NIMBYism. That means having a permitting process that is, that is efficient. That means um, hiring the number of inspectors and, and planners to be able to move things through quickly. That means taking advantage of the tiering laws like my SB 743 that allows a CEQA to be relaxed if a project is consistent with an overall specific plan. <clears throat> it means um, more funding. It means more subsidy. It means more creativity. You know, in Sacramento, one of the things I'm excited about is, you know, there's a young developer, Nikki Mohana at 19th and J Street. She's trying to achieve affordability in a market rate condominium and apartment complex by significantly lowering the size of some units. Got some units that are going to go for uh, $900, $1,000 a month. They're five and 600 square feet. Mm. And a lot of people, you know, uh, your generation, um, you know. It's like gravel voice the, again. The, <laughs> the, the, cool, the cool people, right? I mean, they, 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 they want to they wanna live, um, you know, it's, that's a good, it's a lifestyle and a positive lifestyle choice. So, yes, we can do it. Um, but we've got to make it easier to build. And it's going to take resources. Um, and next question and last question. Scott at Scotty Doo-Wop asks, will you look at supporting an ordinance that won't allow large institutional investors to buy up houses and turn them into rentals? Well, I believe in preserving um, um, existing affordable housing. I certainly would resist any effort to allow anyone to buy up existing affordable housing, um, turn it into market rate housing and reduce the net supply of already limited affordable housing. So I guess the answer is yes. Okay. Right. Mayor Steinberg, thank you so much. Thank you Thanks. so much. Great Hopefully you had some fun. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it, you guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. Important issues. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast brought to you by CalMatters. Uh, special thanks to Mayor Daryl Steinberg of Sacramento for joining us today. Yeah, it was great. Uh, we're here every two weeks. And two weeks from now, we have a first live podcast. And so you can potentially come see us if you go to the Housing California Conference uh, at the Convention Center on March 7th. And we'll have a great show. And you can read more of Liam's great work at Liam at Dylan Liam, sorry. On Twitter, yeah. And also LATimes.com. And I exist also. You can read my uh, work at M11 Reports. And thanks again for listening. Why don't you tell me, in all honesty, Lady Bird kind of overrated, right? <laughs> and we're taping. This. I will yeah. never admit that. <laughs> By saying you won't admit it, I feel like there's I a thought, degree no, of truth. I truth. actually loved the movie. I actually thought it was really good. I mean, it, I, I felt that, you know, sentiment about Sacramento. It, it hit me, you know? And, and uh, I thought it was really well done. Overrated. No, I would not say that. <laughs>